Morning Crosswalk, and welcome to the penultimate sermon, as you know, um, the second to the last sermon on this Christmas list series. We finish it right after Christmas, which I hope is going to be okay for you. So you should be watching this on the 19th. And we are talking about the Christmas list that God has for us. And there have been so many already, right? Don't be afraid, love your neighbor, revelation, reconciliation. But this one today is about worship and it's important. I think it's very important because what happens when you are given a gift and you don't know how to say thank you for it? I mean a big gift, right? Something that is, something that is significant, something that's so big that saying thank you just seems silly. We've all had that kind of a gift, right? We don't get a lot of them in life, but every once in a while, someone will give you a gift and you're speechless. You don't know what to say. And it's almost hard to handle because what you've been given, there's no way to, you know, give compensation for. You're not going to pay for it. You're not going to, you know, try and pay somebody back because you can't do that. That's why it's a gift that's so big. I mean, I've gotten one of those gifts before. I have to tell you, in fact, I got one last week. So since I've been at Crosswalk, I have hearkened back to the time when I was working at Loma Linda University Church. And one of the reasons why I liked working there was they had this huge ice machine, probably from 1960 something, or maybe the 80s. I have no idea anymore. Anyway, and it has those really like extruded ice cubes, those little ones. I love those. And I've always wanted one at the church that I worked in. In fact, when I left Loma Linda, I asked the maintenance guy, if I could purchase it from the church. And he, of course, said no. So this whole time I've been complaining. And we've we've gone and looked and seen some ice machines and thought maybe we should get one for the church. It was never quite right. It was never exactly right. But then last week, Christy Ann, who's one of my favorite people, because why wouldn't she be? She puts in our little office lounge, lounge is maybe an overwhelming thing, but where we have our coffee machine and that sort of thing, she puts this countertop ice machine that makes that kind of ice. Now, I got to tell you, it, like, I didn't know what to say. I was so happy. And it wasn't just because I got this kind of ice, which is really, I'm happy about, but it's because of the thoughtfulness of that particular gift. So I said, thank you a lot. But you know, that doesn't really cover it. And there's been a few other times in my life where I've gotten gifts that are just so overwhelming. I'm not sure what to do. Like you almost just want to sing or something afterwards because there's no visceral response. Those gifts that you cry because someone was so thoughtfully, was thinking about you so thoughtfully when they, when they purchased it or when they found it or when they made it. I love those kind of gifts. We all love those kind of gifts. And this is expressed in scripture in the book of Luke chapter two. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation and it's a part of the story that you know really well. It's the shepherds. And this is gonna seem a little weird because I'm gonna talk about this part of the shepherd's story. And next week, I'm actually gonna talk about part of the shepherd's story from before, but stick with me here. We're kind of all over the place with the Christmas story, but that's all right because we're talking about the gifts that Christ has for us on his wish list. So it begins Luke 2 verse 20. It says, the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. You see, they were going back after seeing Jesus and they were worshiping God. They had received the news of the gift and they had had a hard time keeping it 
quiet because they just wanted to tell everyone because that's what you do, right? Eight days later, it says in verse 21, eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Now, again, the context, right? We know the name was out of tradition. He would have been you know, something bar Joseph, but rather than being that, he was given the name that the angel gave him. And these things had already been decided. And every once in a while, a kid is born and their name is already decided. I think I've told you this a few times, but, but my son, Jacob, my oldest son, he's 16 now. And as soon as we were pregnant with a boy, it was clear that that's what people were going to call him. And people said, oh, what's his name going to be? And we said, well, we don't know. We've got a, a few different names that we're thinking about, this and that and the other thing. And, and my family was like, no, his name will be Jacob. And it was almost biblical in the way that they said it. Why? His name will be Jacob because that was my grandfather and that's my middle name. And so, of course, that was going to be his name. And we were actually thinking about maybe changing it, maybe not having it be that. But everyone in the family just began to call him Jacob before he was born. So this was already preset. The angel had given the name. Then it says in verse 22, it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of the child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. We see the importance that Jesus was brought up as any child would be in Palestine. So yes, he's God, but he doesn't forego the traditions. He doesn't forego all the different things that are supposed to happen to a child born in Palestine at the time. Why? Because he is like us. He is, of course, God, but he is also human. Remember his divinity being quiescent, being shrouded over. So they were doing what good parents would do. And of course, in Luke 2, 23, the law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. Again, this is context. Remember, traditions aren't just pure pressure from the dead. They are, at times, life-giving commitments to the community of God. And I know some of us have issues with traditions because it feels like all that peer pressure coming from people who live long ago. But sometimes, done the right way and thought of in the right way, traditions are these beautiful things. And Christmas is one of those times where we all have traditions, right? Do you open the gifts on on? Christmas Eve? Do you open them on Christmas morning? What kind of food do you eat on that evening or that morning or during that day? How does it go? Who gets to open their presents first? Do you open stockings first? I can go on and on. Certain types of food. We all have traditions. And again, they're not just peer pressure from those who've gone before us. Sometimes they are life-giving and soul-committing things. And so this is what was happening at the time. And so in Luke 2, 24, it says, so they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, it was a bit more complicated than that. There's kind of a lot of stuff going on, but that's just a quick overview of what the doctor, Luke, is reminding us of. Luke 2.25, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, and you know this part of the story. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And then in a new sentence, it says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's a few things that are going on here that are worth noting. Three at least, maybe four. The first thing we see in this sentence is that Simon was righteous. Now, this is the understanding that Simeon was in a right relationship with God. I think I might have said Simon before. Simeon was in a right relationship with God. That is righteousness, lest we forget. He was clear on who God was and 
who he was in that relationship. And it was important to him. He worked hard to see that he and God were on the same page. So how was that done? We'll get to that in just a second. But let me ask you this question right now. How is your relationship with God? Is it right? And what I mean by that is, it, is there a righteousness to it? Now, we can often think of righteousness as being, as being behavior, doing right things, but it means being in a right relationship. So is your relationship with him okay in a sense that you know that he is God and that you're human and no one stands in the way of that relationship? Again, not just about behavior. But, but how does he know? One of the ways that he knows is that Simon was devout, it says. And what does it mean to be devout? Well, somebody who's devoted, right? Committed to the cause. But this is important to note. Simeon was not just devoted to the religion, rather to the God behind the religion. We have a tendency to think that we devote ourselves to this faith we belong to, but truly we devote ourselves to the object of that faith and the faith that we espouse, the faith that we express, that is our way of living the commitment and the devotion we have to the God who is the object of that faith. That's really important for us to understand because our religion doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Our religion is the organized manner or fashion in which we express that relationship, that right relationship with God. So it's important to ask, to what are you devoted? And I got to tell you, 2020 has been a revealer, and you all probably know this. It has been a revealer to what we are really devoted to, right? Because we... We've seen ourselves devote ourselves to a lot of different things over this time. And I got to tell you, things I'm surprised, quite honestly, that people would want to commit to. So are you committed to the God behind that faith? Are you committed not just to the religion, say, Seventh-day Adventism or Christianity, whatever term you'd like to give. Are you committed to the Jesus behind it? Because while a lot of the ways we express kind of the culture of Christianity are particular, they're, they're obvious. Sometimes those things don't necessarily express who God is. And that's important for us to understand because what we've seen really happen this year is some really interesting conflation, right? Some confusion, if you will, between the God that we believe in and the culture that we're espousing. Now, when things line up, it's beautiful, but they don't always line up. And in a year like 2020, we have to really reevaluate what it is that we believe in. So Simon was righteous in a righteous relationship with God. Simon was devoted. And Simon was, it says, eagerly waiting. And because he understood the object of his faith and because he was committed or devout, he was able to eagerly wait, knowing the promises that God had given him. So I wonder today, what are you eagerly waiting for, right? Are you waiting for the end of 2020? Are you waiting for the end of the pandemic, the end of the contention that we've been living with, at least here in the United States? Or have we forgotten that first impulse of Seventh-day Adventism, which is to eagerly await the coming of Jesus above and beyond all things, right? That, that eagerness and I would almost say anxiety, but when you're in a right relationship with God, eagerness and anxiety are not the same thing because you know that God has it in his hand 
and you're waiting for that to be revealed to you, which is what Simeon was doing. The last thing it says is that Simeon had the Holy Spirit on him because of his waiting eagerly, because of his devotion, because of his righteousness, that relationship with God. The Holy Spirit found it simple to be in Simeon's heart. So this leads to another question, and obviously I've got a little pattern, a little template I'm using here. But when was the last time you experienced the Holy Spirit? And, you know, before the pandemic, it was, it was a lot easier, I think, because we had this place set up for you. It was all, all designed so that you would come and have an experience with the Holy Spirit, the way we would think about the music, the lights, the, the way that you entered in, everything. It was so that you would have an experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that to be manipulation, although some people may say that. That is the, the, the way that we were able to shed ourselves of all this other extraneous things that we deal with every single week and come in and focus on the words of a song or, or the music that was being played. Focus on that and then have that God moment. Right? But in the, absent of cor- in the absence of corporate worship, what are you doing to invite the Holy Spirit into your life? Again, without those prescribed, if you will, experiences that we were able to create for you, now you've got to do them for yourself. In the absence of corporate worship, the spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, fasting, study, and service, and I could list a lot more, but those four in particular become more important than ever, right? To experience God because we don't have the experience that has been made for you. Yeah, we do this online and that's great. And I'm just blown away by how amazing the team has been able to week after week lead us to the foot of the cross. But I gotta tell you, and you know this, it's not the same, right? So it means that all of a sudden we've gotta rethink about what it means to be in a right relationship, what it means to be eagerly waiting, what it means to be devout, and what it means to have the Holy Spirit rest. And we have to figure that out for ourselves, not corporately, not done for us in any manufactured way, but completely on our own. And that's okay. Because it still leads to the same thing. Because our first response after experiencing the presence of God is worship. Sometimes it's fear, right? But we get past that and we move on to worship. And whether you're a shepherd on a hill, a congregant in the midst of an incredible worship service, whether you're praying alone, fasting, serving others, studying scripture, our first response to God's presence is worship. And you know, when, when something's going really well, you want to you wanna hum a tune, right? You want to sing a little bit. You want to express yourself in the joy that you have. And we're going to talk about joy a little bit more next week. But I got to tell you, since, since we can't come every week and experience that together, you've got to find ways to experience that yourself. And by the way, in the new year, we're going to talk about this still because it's going to be a while until we can all come together again. And so we're going to talk about how you really lean into those ideas of discipleship and spiritual disciplines that continue to grow us in the presence of God, even though we're not around everyone else. Now think about it. Think about if you could really grow a strong relationship and discipline within yourself. Think about how strong your relationship will be when you come back to worship together corporately. So that is really my hope and my wish for you. Simeon is waiting and he's waiting on the promises of God. 
Because in Luke 2.26, it tells us that this had been revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. This was the pact that God had made with Simeon. That anticipation must have been palpable in his life. I wonder if he went to the, he went to the, the temple each day looking around, looking at the little boys that they were bringing in and saying, is this the one? Is this the one? I wonder how many times he asked that. For some reason, I don't know why, but this reminds me of that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark when they were searching for the Holy Grail. And it was the first time I had seen Petra, um, really understood that, that whole, the library there and just that amazing thing that I got to see a few years ago. And so I always remember that movie when he was looking for the Holy Grail and he's, he's sitting there thinking, is this the one? He's looking at these cups. Is this the one? Chalices, I suppose. Is this the one? And then he looks and he goes, oh, it would have been a, it would have been a carpenter's, a simple carpenter's cup. And he reaches for the right one. <clears throat> Simeon seemed to know the Holy Spirit showed him who the right one was. So again, I'm going to ask you a question. <clears throat> How will you know which one is Jesus? Because messiahs are tricky, right? They all seem valid until they don't anymore. I mean, if we're to judge prophets by their fruits, wouldn't we judge messiahs by their fruits as well? It's easy to buy in to, to someone who who says they're going to make life better for you. And in the first century, this was happening all the time. You know that, right? There were messiahs that were coming out of the desert all the time. I mean, when John the Baptist rose up out of the desert, people were like, you're the guy, you're the messiah. He was the only one who was like, nah, it's not me. If you remember Barabbas, right? Barabbas, who they asked for instead of Jesus. They asked him to be let free. He was someone who had been calling himself a Messiah. Messiahs are tricky. How will you know which one is Jesus? Simeon knew because he had a righteous relationship with God. He was devout. He was eagerly waiting. So he was focused. His eyes were open and he was looking for what the Holy Spirit would tell them. Luke 2, 27, it says, the day, that day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, so he came prepared. It says Simeon was there in Luke 2, 28. And when he recognized the baby, he took the child in his arms and praised God. Now, older people can do this better than younger people. My mom is one of those ladies who when, when she sees a baby and she wants to hold it, it doesn't matter if she knows this kid. It doesn't matter if she knows the parents. She will walk up to complete strangers, grab a hold of that kid, and start loving on it. Now, you can't do that when you're younger because people think you're either trying to steal the baby or there's something weird about you. But when you're an old lady, you can do it. And apparently Simeon, when he was old, he just went over and he grabbed that baby. And this is what he said. He said, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you promised. He, God's presence was enough, enough to fulfill a life of anticipation. He continues on in verse 30. I have seen your salvation. By the way, when you look at the face of salvation, you don't wonder anymore. And no one can take that away from you. He says, I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. So this has been in the works since the fall. Genesis 3, 15. And it's not just, not just for the Israelites. It was for everyone, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. 
And Simeon continues, and it's almost like a praise song. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. It sounds like a praise song, and it sounds like a good praise song. It sounds like one we would sing. Because we worship when we see the face of salvation, and seeing it in this child changed how Simeon thought about his life even. And then, of course, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Even his parents. And they knew who he was, right? They knew who he was going to be. Why were they amazed? But this is something that happens when, when your kids are recognized by others to be who they are. When people talk about my kids, I am, I am two things. Number one, I'm incredibly proud. And number two, I'm a little amazed sometimes. Not because my kids aren't wonderful, but I live with them every single day. So we see all the best and all the worst, right? So when, you're, when someone comes and says something about my kids, I'm, I'm amazed and pleased and proud all at the same time. You see, at this point, and I think throughout the whole life of Jesus, his parents, certainly Mary, which we know more about than Joseph, his salvation never really became commonplace to them. I mean, they had to deal with the fact that he was a baby, that he was a God man, but they were also amazed at the things that people would say. Luke 2, 34. Then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Now, this is a weird blessing for sure, right? Because he says it's destined to cause many to fall and he will be a joy to others. But that's how it is with a Messiah, right? Because you have to decide whether or not to follow the Messiah, and to be sure, when you decide to follow someone or something, there is a lot to lose. But oh, there's so much to gain if you're following the right Messiah. I said it before, Messiahs are tricky. I don't know where you put your stock into the Messiahs of today, but we know that there's only one that will ultimately carry us through. Luke 2.35, it continues, As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. You see, that's the thing, right? A Messiah always reveals more than himself or herself. Rather, it is revealed in the hearts of those who follow him or her. This year has done that in some ways as well. And for some, it has been amazing what has been revealed through your life, through this struggle. And for some, it has been incredibly ugly. What is this year revealed about you? And you need to ask yourself this question. I've learned a lot about myself some of which I'm, I'm surprised by, some of which I'm not all that happy about, and some of which I just have to lay at the foot of the cross. I just have to give to Jesus. What has this year, out of all the years that we've lived, what has this year revealed about you? What has your search for a Messiah in 2020 revealed about you? You see, Simeon allowed the Messiah to remind him of the desire of his heart and to remind him that the Messiah was the only thing that he truly, truly needed. He saw his Savior and it was enough. So in your search for a Messiah, a search for someone to praise, a search for someone to worship, is Jesus enough for you? Or have you been looking for other Messiahs as well? Because those will all fade. Those will go away. The only one that lasts, the only one that continues 
is the Messiah that Simeon held up in his hands, the, ones that, the one that died for you and was risen for you and ascended into heaven and is waiting for you, waiting to come down again. That's the Messiah that we need. And that's the only one worth praising. That's the only one worth worshiping. And by the way, the reason this Christmas wish for you is worship this week, if I hadn't made it clear, it's worship. The reason why it's worship is because worship helps us to commit to the Messiah. That worship, as we re-encounter the things that God has done for us through word, through song, whether it's worship through fasting or worship through praying or worship through studying or worship through service or worship through singing, corporately or independently, you know, together or alone, whatever that is, that's what solidifies our understanding of who the Messiah is, his promises. When Simeon saw that his promises were good, what did he do? He sang a praise song. What do you do when you come into the presence of God? We know that by clearing certain things. We know that by being in a right relationship with God, devoting ourselves to Him, we know that by eagerly waiting, allowing the Holy Spirit to be a part of us, we are just like Simeon. And when we see the face of Jesus, we know that He's enough. That's, what's Christmas, that's what Christmas is to remind us of every year, a recommitment to the one and only Messiah, the Messiah that calls Himself Jesus, the Son of God and at times the Son of Man. We call him our savior, the center and circumference of our faith, everything that we need. So my hope for you this Christmas and this last week before we celebrate Christmas together is that you will spend this week worshiping God, whether it's with your family, whether it's just you alone, whether you're in a parking lot trying to find a way to get into Target to buy those last gifts, rather than getting frustrated by as many people are out as, they, as you don't think should be or in your way, what you can do is you can worship God through the midst of that because that solidifies who he is in our lives. God's Christmas wish for us this week is that we might worship him, not just for his edification, but for yours as well. Let's bow our heads. God of grace, God of love, God of the gift, thank you for what you've given us. May we worship you this week in overwhelming ways, not just with the song that's about to play, but in ways that, that grow us. Lord, whether it be corporately or whether it be alone, grow us in worship of you. Help us under, to understand like Simeon, that when we see your face, it's enough, that your grace is sufficient and your presence is sufficient for us. Lord, we wanna come back, we wanna worship together, we wanna be whole again, but until then, Lord, be the presence in our life that we need so that we may see the face of salvation. Pray these things in your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.